Hello and welcome back to another edition of NAEMT Radio. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and already over the first few episodes of this uh, new podcast, uh, we've had some amazing and stellar leaders, some great subjects, some really deep and meaningful discussions, obviously highlighting not only the people that we have on as guests, but also the amazing work that's going on across the National Association of EMTs. And amazing work obviously takes amazing people. And today we're going to celebrate professionals and uh, talk to some amazing people about their career pathways, about how they got to where they are, what motivates them, what inspires them. And in the end, I'm going to do the bluff bit, the bottom line up front. I'm going to ask them how, what advice they have for you if you aspire to have a great career in EMS. I'm joined today by Brian Stannett and Karen Larson. Uh, Brian is a firefighter paramedic from uh, Palatine uh, Fire Department in Illinois and the Director of Emergency Provider Services and Medical Education and, importantly, EMS liaison, Karen Larson. And so, guys, welcome and thank you for joining us on NAMT Radio. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. So I'm all about asking you to give your backstory. And so, uh, Karen, why don't you kick off and give us the, the, the Karen Larson backstory, what got you into what you do now, where you are now. And uh, actually, this is a long question. And what do you enjoy about your job? Oh, goodness. I'm going to age myself because I'm a Johnny and Roy girl. Um, <clears throat> I was a huge fan of Dixie McCall back in the day and always wanted to be a nurse. Um my mom actually got me started in EMS. She was an EMT for a very small community service. And my senior year in high school, I followed in her footsteps and got my EMT. Um, followed that three years later, went on to paramedic school. Um, worked as a paramedic in Kansas City for several years. And then my husband and I decided to move back to his hometown. Um, there was an nepotism law at his particular service. So... I jumped right in and went to nursing school while working for the local volunteer service as a paramedic. Got my nursing degree, went to Wichita, worked in the ER for several years, and uh, a flight opportunity came available. And all the time, I'm continuing to work as a volunteer paramedic in our county. And um, what better way to combine both worlds, um, nursing and paramedics? So. I became a flight nurse paramedic and um, did that for 17 and a half years. And um, while I was doing that, I got my master's in nursing and became a nurse practitioner, went to work for a local ER, but continued to teach and fly part-time. And in 2021, I hung up my flight suit and um, became the director of the ER here um, for the providers. And um Continue to be on the roster for our local uh, EMS service as a volunteer paramedic. I continue to teach um, EMS classes and outreach programs. And uh, I'm also an education consultant for a fire EMS, EMS-based um, service up in the northern part of the state. So um, I patient care is all I've known for over 30 years. And that's what drives me is taking care of my patients and being the best I can and um, being a role model for my kids and um, my EMS students, that's what keeps me going. And I uh, recently obtained my doctorate in nursing <clears throat> practice and um, I just hitting the pinnacle of the nursing career. I couldn't go any higher. Um, that was kind of a drive for me. And um, 
that's kind of where I'm at now. Wow, Karen, on my uh, sort of checklist of jobs that you can do in and around pre-hospital and emergency care, uh, I think you've checked it all off. So I can't wait to come back and drill down into some of that. Uh, uh, Brian Stennett, good morning and uh, over to you, sir. Good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, I actually find that Karen and I have a very similar pathway. I uh, grew up around fire and EMS. My father was a firefighter paramedic. Uh, starting in Roanoke, Virginia with the Roanoke Lifesaving Crew, which was one of the first organized uh, rescue squads in the country uh, back in the 70s and 80s when he was working there. And we moved to Illinois when I was fairly young. Uh, and I grew up going to see my dad at the firehouse. And similar to Karen, when I was 18, I took an EMT class at night during my senior year of high school and immediately started working my first EMT job during my freshman year of college and really kind of fell in love with the career. Uh, I went to paramedic school when I was 19, uh, Fire Academy shortly after, and began working for a contract service uh, in Illinois. Decided to go back to school, and I moved to Indiana, where I worked in Indianapolis uh, for a private agency there uh, for about two years uh, before I got hired at Palatine Fire Department back in 2004. Uh, so I'll be approaching uh, completing my 19th year later this year with the fire department. Um, you know, really... Within the fire department, there's a lot of opportunity for growth. We're in a uh, suburban area of Chicago. We run approximately 9,000 calls per year the last uh, year or so um, in a about 14 square miles. So pretty uh, sub- pretty urban area. Uh, we get to see a wide variety of call types. Um, we have a very progressive EMS system that fosters uh, progressive SOPs. Uh, we're allowed to do quite a bit. We try and stay on top of the latest evidence-based practices. And it's good to see that other areas in the country are doing the same and that we're getting to do similar opportunities here. Um, I've been the infection control officer for our fire department since 2008. And during that role, um, I realized there was some change needed in how we at at our agency and within our EMS system handled infectious disease exposures. And I got involved in writing some policy and that really highlighted that I needed some better education for that. So I went on to get a master of public health in epidemiology that I finished in 2018 and have been using that to kind of forward my career in the infectious disease side of EMS. Thank you for that. Thank you both of you. And uh, there's so many topics that we can pick off as we celebrate uh, our our professionals, but obviously your career pathways give us plenty of things to delve into and to talk about. And uh, I'm going to pick up where you just left off, Brian. First of all, uh, I think we all agree that public health has had a bit of a bashing in the last few years. And, uh, of course, the pandemic uh, seemed at some points it was public health versus the rest of the world. And uh, what our great public health people were telling us was perhaps politically ignored as well as, uh, you know, dismissed. And uh, my great chant when I go out on the road is, if you don't know the name of your public health director, shame on you because we have to work hand in hand, hand in glove, side by side with our public health folk. And so uh, when I saw that post-nominal, uh, Brian, I was very excited. And uh, you, you have a concentration in epidemiology, which is, is the one we need, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So let, let's go back to the beginning. You both have some sort of connection or origins in the volunteer world. Um, and it's where a lot of our folk get their start where a lot of our folk provide a great service to their local community. It's probably where a lot of our folk get their first EMT certification. Um, 
But I think just looking through the news, though, that uh, volunteers and volunteerism seems to be waning, particularly in rural areas. I mean, have you seen examples of that? And, uh, you know, what, what, what would you suggest we do? So in our particular area, volunteerism is dying. Um, I think it's generational. Um, back when I was younger, my I watched my mom volunteer. Um, I still volunteer. We get paid $25 a call. But you don't see the younger generation doing that. And I, I think it, volunteerism means something way different to the older population than it does to our current population. And I am not dogging our current population at all, but um, it's um, not going to get paid, not going to do it kind of mentality um, in our area, especially so I'm not sure what the answer is, but attracting the younger people to do the volunteer thing is um, a key focus um, for us right now and working on accomplishing that. Yeah, I, I think the volunteers are actually a gateway drug into uh, full-time EMT, right? So we need to uh, keep that going. But uh, Brian, we we were before we started recording, we realized we're both uh, sort of, uh, even though I'm a Brit, I'm a product of uh, Virginia, and that's the homestead, the heartland of volunteer rescue squads. And uh, absolutely, you know, what, what what do you think, man? No, I think that you know Karen's right as far as you know generations being able to focus their time on it. I think twenty years ago, um, you know, maybe even longer as the shift in college being a nice to do thing after high school versus now it seems to be the expectation for every student to go on to college. And if you didn't go to college, that it's some sort of failure. And with the student loans and other uh, burdens that that brings to try and get an education and then get a job that's able that you're able to afford to survive on. Um, we definitely have a problem in EMS where the level of pay is not sustainable without working, you know, 80 hours a week in overtime. And so then you look at, too, the educational requirements uh, for EMT paramedic level training, you know, in the 85 and 99 curriculum, the number of hours required were significantly less than they are now. So being able to take the time away from a full-time job to go to EMT program or go to paramedic program and devote your time to that, and then the continuing education requirements when that's not a paying job for you is difficult for people to pull away from their families or their full-time work in order to invest in that. And that's becoming more and more difficult as EMS becomes more of a recognized allied health profession than a first aid service. Perhaps we need some sort of USERA law where uh, if you are going off to volunteer for your local squad, it's a bit like going to the guard, right? Or the reserve. Um, you know, you're, pr you're protected while you're going to college to do your paramedic class. How's about that for some legislation and AMT and everybody else? That the the point there is that uh, there is some legislation needed, even at the local level. And we spent time, certainly on NEMT radio, talking about the politics is not just on the Capitol Hill. It's actually in your local areas. And uh, I certainly sat in boards of supervisors, Brian, in Virginia, where out, out in our sort of neighboring areas where the board realized all of a sudden they're going to have to dig deep and start funding EMS in the local area because shaking the boot outside the food line or Kroger's or wherever isn't going to cut it anymore, a, a in funding it, and isn't going to gain any more volunteers. And so, you know, it's something that uh, I I certainly pay attention to. And inevitably, these are in rural areas, which are also having significant challenges as well. And so, you know, food for thought, everybody, right? 
One step is once the states start recognizing it as an essential service, we'll be more than, uh, as Brian said, Band-Aid wagon or boo-boo bus. Um, we'll, you know, I think it, it's got to start from the top and come down to make people realize what we are and what we do. Excellent. We'll move on. Uh, that was kind of a, 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 one of my soapboxes about, uh, you know, the 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 state of volunteer services. And I don't say state in a derogatory way, but actually we need to encourage it and we need to keep it and we can't afford to lose it. Uh, so career pathways, we're here to celebrate you guys as, as professionals. And uh, obviously you're in, you, you've had the benefit of some um, amazing and varied careers. And uh, as I say, as I said at the start, Karen, I kind of checked off the various roles that you've had. Um, how have you, in each time you've you've transited for for the various reasons that you described, uh, you know, all good. What what were the takeaways every time you moved into another sector and another element of your career? You know, what what were the kind of key learning points at each kind of step up the ladder for you? You know, each time I took a step, it was um, I could do more, I could accomplish more for my patients, and and I was very uh, goal driven as far as bettering my patients, bettering their outcomes. Um, and very patient centric care is, was, um, my whole goal. And, um, you know, one of the very few careers you can have a hand in somebody's first day of life, their last day of life and everything in between. Um, and I just want to be there for people on the worst day of their lives. And, um, that's typically when I show up is, is the worst day of their life or they're having a very bad day. So um, just to do better for my patients, do better and do more. Another one of my sort of Robism sayings is that sometimes this job isn't a job. It's actually a way of life. And I think what you just said there, you just described that perfectly. Brian, you, you've advanced yourself in the public health world in epidemiology and obviously infection control and so you must have gone through some great learning experiences and, and obviously did you do all of this before covid i did um so you must have been pulling pulling all those classes out of your out of the out of your head when when covid came along then absolutely i uh i was asked a question about you know the timing of my advanced degree for public health and when covid hit and really i it, the way that i joked about it was that it was like my Super Bowl. Not that we ever wanted to have a pandemic, but the timing of it couldn't have been more ideal for how I was able to use that education and improve how my agency and our EMS system responded to the pandemic. I felt like we were very well prepared for what came and were able to navigate it pretty well without too much difficulty or hiccups in that process. And what really kind of started that passion for me, and, and even going back to one of my first jobs as a paramedic, as Karen mentioned, you know, being there for the first day of somebody's life or the last day of their life, there's very different EMS agencies throughout the country. And I've had the opportunity to work in three different states, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana. And where I'm at currently in Illinois, we are fire-based EMS service, and everyone at my fire department is a paramedic. All of our non-transport fire engines are ALS all of our ambulances are two paramedic ALS vehicles. When I worked in Indiana, at that time, uh, Marion County had Indianapolis Fire Department plus the nine surrounding township fire departments. Some of them had ambulance service, some did not. And some of the surrounding counties either had volunteer or part-time uh, services that may or may not have had services. So 
for the private ambulance service that I worked for, it was typically one paramedic and one EMT, and you may or may not get an assistance uh, from the local fire service. And I had a couple of calls where they were critical patients and I wasn't sure exactly what to do. And I'm the only paramedic there. And it really drove my educational desire to learn more, read the journals, keep up on continuing education and advance my knowledge base because I never wanted to be on a call where I didn't know what to do. Where I work in Illinois now, I don't have as much of that issue because there's five paramedics on a call and we can bounce ideas of, off of each other and say, hey, what do you think is going on? You know, do you, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Do we need to move in a different direction for this patient? And not everywhere in the country has that luxury. And so I took that as that continual drive to be an eternal student. I'm, I'm always looking for the next piece of education. And when infection control came into play for that, when I first took over the role, uh, the very first needle stick injury on the job that I handled, we had some missteps in how follow-up testing was done for the source patient. And there was delays in the testing, um, partly because of policy issues, partly because of just communication breakdown and how source patient results were communicated back. And it really highlighted that there's a need for education. Under the Ryan White Law at the federal level, every first responder agency in the country is supposed to have a designated officer. That's police departments, fire departments, and EMS agencies. There's over 15,000 EMS agencies in this country, and there's not a lot of education out there for how to be an infection control officer. So when you're looking at who's teaching your bloodborne pathogens, are they competent and qualified to really give your staff good education? When you go through the EMT and paramedic program, when you look at communicable diseases, it's really a small portion of your education. It's you know 30 or 45 minutes in the first week of class where you talk about transmission and PPE. And so I think that highlighted that overall problem in healthcare that we know how to treat symptoms of illnesses, but how those illnesses transmit, what's the actual risk of transmission? How does the, what does the PPE actually do for us and what doesn't it do for us? And that's why we had such dichotomy throughout the country, both in EMS and in hospitals on masking policies and how that became political because we didn't have a good understanding of what it does for us. And if we as healthcare providers that wear it all the time or are supposed to wear it all the time, don't understand it, how can we expect the public to understand it? And when I, you know, prior to the pandemic, when I was looking at this lack of education for infection control, I really wanted to work on that. And I became involved in an organization called NAPSICO. It's the National Association of Public Safety Infection Control Officers. And I really felt like in order to make a difference, uh, my experience as a paramedic wasn't going to be enough. Um, whether I was going to get involved in teaching classes or writing a curriculum or assisting somebody else that's already teaching, um, I wanted that pedigree uh, to back it up. And that's when I started the public health program through University of Illinois Springfield and completed that in about two and a half years uh, with the certificate in epidemiology. And, and really, that was my goal was to forward the infection control officer role in EMS and further that to be something that everybody in the country can benefit from. Uh, through that, I'm now the board president for NAPSICO. Um, a group involved with NAPSICO has worked with the 
International Board of Specialty Certifications, and we wrote a certification exam called the DICO-C exam, similar to flight paramedic, um, where infection control officers for EMS agencies can sit and take a certification and be board certified as the DICO for their agency. Um, and I think that that's really important to have somebody at your agency that has a education and background that's vetted that if you get a needle stick or you have an exposure to communicable disease, there's somebody at your agency that can advocate for you to make sure that your follow-up, that your vaccines or that any medication that's offered to you as a prophylaxis is appropriate for what's going on. Because I think in a lot of situations, you know, ER doctors and nurses, they're not infectious disease physicians and occupational health doctors are not infectious disease physicians. So they may not always have your best interest, even though they intend to, they just might not be, they might be ignorant to what the actual CDC or recommended protocols are. And so it's important to have somebody at your agency that knows what's supposed to happen so that you can ensure that it does. Excellent. Thank you for that. And uh, we're just going to take a second and uh, have a quick break. Hey, I'm Makara Trusty. I am not only an NAEMT member, I'm also a, a member of the Lighthouse Leadership Committee. NAEMT, with support from FirstNet, built with AT&T, has developed a course to assist EMS agencies in building and supporting the mental health resilience of their personnel. The Mental Health Resilience Officer, or MHRO, course prepares EMS personnel to serve as their agency's mental health resilience officer. In this role, the MHRO will engage with peers to develop an understanding of mental health issues and resilience, identify peers who are experiencing mental health stressors and crises, navigate peers in need to the right services for help, and support the development of a culture of mental health resilience and emotional wellness within the agency. Available online and in a classroom format, and when your agency signs up for NAEMT membership, they will receive free access to this critically important course. For more details, contact membership at naemt.org or follow the links in the show notes. Hey, uh, welcome back to NAMT Radio. I'm talking to Brian Stennett and uh, Karen Larson. Karen, before we went out there, uh, and Brian, by the way, this is going to be the soundbite for me so far in the first half of the show when you said that that continual drive to be the eternal student, that's a great soundbite. And actually, that's could, could be on a poster somewhere. Next to the Ted Lasso Believe should be that sign that says that, right, in yellow with blue writing above the coach's door. Because it's true. You've clearly been a lifelong learner as well, Karen, in the various roles that you've had. You know, if you're listening in the station on the truck, how do you encourage somebody to start that lifelong learning journey? Just encourage them to always be the best they can be. And um, there's never an end to learning. Um, even, you know, in my role now, I've hit the pinnacle of my nursing degree, but um, I strive every day to learn. And, um, you know, not everybody's going to go out and get a master's or get a doctorate. Um, but there's ways to further your education and further your career without the big degrees behind your name. So never stop learning. Just um, always strive to do better, um, be the best you can be for your patients. And and I think to be the best you can be for your patients, you have to, medicine changes every day. And, um, you know, during the height of COVID, 
daily changes on what we were supposed to be doing and, and, um, you know, wear, wear this mask this day, wear this mask this day, glove, gown, eye protection, hair protection. Um, every single day changed and medicine is that way. It's just evolving. And, um, and I think to be the best you can be in EMS or hospital career, um, anything to do with medicine, you have to strive to continually learn. So I encourage my nurses, um, all my providers, any of the staff I work with to take classes and read articles and, um, do what you can. Um, you got to, to be the best you can be. Thank you for that. Those are exceptionally wise words. And I hope people listening, take those away. I'm going to stay with you, uh, Karen, and because you've been in the trifecta of uh, emergency delivery, you've been on the truck, you've been in the helicopter, and now you are in the uh, emergency department. And so how do you liaise? How do you bring everybody together? Obviously, we've had a lot of stresses and a lot of strains, and uh, there are some parts of the country where, you know, the good old is it good? Never will discuss. Good old wall time or in California, APOT ambulance patient offload times are a challenge. It's causing strain. It's causing stress. It's causing upset. Um, you know, you've done all those roles. Uh, what what are your secrets to really to, to harmony and also to solving some of these issues? Communication is the key to every one of the items you mentioned. You've got to have good open communication. And during the height of COVID, it it really brought out some um, great ways that we could communicate and work together. But it also, it really brought out a lot of negativities and um, adversities between how you treat patients and how you don't versus EMS hospital base. Um, and the only way we could get around those was to have um, meetings. And we did um, COVID huddles and had weekly meetings with staff and included EMS so that we were all on the same page. Um, and I just can't stress enough that communication is the key to everybody getting along. Um, you're always going to have the outliers that don't see eye to eye uh, with each other. But for the most part, um, we're in a good place with EMS right now in our um, region. Um, and I think to keep those relationships open and formed, I'm going to be redundant. Communication is the key. And that's, you know, we include them in our education programs, um, include them in just about everything we do um, so that we are all on the same page for our local area. And so I've been listening to you guys for over 20 or so minutes now, and I've been writing down a list of things I've li I think you are so far. So you're ready for your report card. I found so far that uh, you are knowledge hungry, you're motivated, you're great communicators, you're passionate and you're enthusiastic. And obviously that has helped both of you in your careers so far. Um, those are a few things I've listed about you. What else do you think a good leader and a good EMS uh, professional should be? I think just the old cliche of just walking the walk. Whatever you've learned, you incorporate that into your practice. You do it when you're out there treating your patients and you set the example for everybody else around you. Your goal as a leader is to bring everybody else up to your level so that they can perform at that level when you're not there. Um, lead by example, um, boots on the ground. If, like Brian said, if you haven't done it, if you can't walk the walk, 
um, don't pretend to be in their shoes. Um, but um, if you have, lead by example, be right there with them. I would never ask any of my staff to do anything I'm not willing to do. Um, so, One of my classic ending questions uh, as we celebrate uh, you guys because you are exemplar EMS professionals is there anything I've forgotten to ask or anything that uh, we need to know? I would say get involved. If you're not involved, you want to see EMS progress, um, you want to be an advocate, get involved. Um, contact NAEMT, see what committees you can be on. Um, I never, um, I'll put a plug in for Jerry Smith Wheatley. She got me involved in NAEMT and it eventually led me to a spot on the board of directors. And there are multiple opportunities out there with multiple organizations. Be on committees, get involved, uh, promote our profession. Um, no voice is too small. Um, just get out there and get you some. I think that's that's a really good point. You know, getting out there and advocating. Most people in the United States don't understand what EMS really does. Their perception of what we do is based off of what they see on television shows and movies, unless they've actually had the experience of having an ambulance come to their house. And a lot of times that perception is very skewed based on what Hollywood puts in a movie and their expectations of us sometimes are really high or they just really don't understand what we're capable of. And when it comes down to advocating that same lack of knowledge sometimes extends to our legislators. They're businessmen or you know, they own a retail store, they're involved in finance, and they've never had experience with EMS. And now this bill comes across their desk on an EMS-related issue, and they don't really understand how that applies to their community. And so getting out there and advocating, talking to your local legislators from the city or municipal level to the state level to the federal level is really, really important so that we can share with them what it is that we do. When you look at a lot of the um, the you know ESFs that are out there for uh, federal funding and and uh, you know pillars of what we respond with with fire service and healthcare and public health, EMS really is looked at as a transportation mode, and we're so much more than that. We're taking the hospital out to the homes and. During COVID, that was really highlighted what we're capable of doing, whether it's getting involved in vaccines or treating people at their house so that we don't inundate the hospitals and extending the ability to manage patient surge, either through a pandemic or any other mass casualty event, and allowing our public and legislators to understand what we're capable of can really expand um, education and knowledge throughout the community. That was great. And uh, one of the joys of being the podcast host is I get to be able to segue one guest back into the other. You mentioned Hollywood. Of course, Karen, you uh, got your start through Johnny and Roy. And so, you know, we have the opportunity to, you know, be inspired by some of these productions. But uh, if you watch Michael Bay, don't be that inspired. We don't have door-mounted machine guns, people, just so you know. So uh, the Johnny and Roy route is the preferable route and the uh, entry into uh, EMS. One of the things we said before we started recording, which just reminds me, Brian, is, you know, if you want to get your EMS experience, there's more than one model, right? Absolutely. You know, a lot of the country has volunteer paid on call part-time services. 
Um, some areas of the country have fire-based EMS. Some have helicopter or fixed-wing services. There's areas that have hospital-based EMS or private service EMS. So whether you're working for a private service that does 911 response or does hospital-to-hospital -hospital transfers, or you work for a fire-based system that strictly does 911, but you also respond to fires, if that's something that interests you, you can find something that fits the niche the niche that you want to work on. Um, I think that there's opportunities to get involved in specific areas. For instance, I chose infection control as an area that I wanted to be involved in. But if you're interested in training and education, you can get involved in helping proctor skills labs at your local paramedic or EMT class and maybe get your lead instructor certification and get involved in teaching. There's, there's so many different areas that help build EMS in general that has to happen in the background. Somebody has to be good at the logistics of ordering supplies and looking at specking out your ambulances. So if you're a mechanical person and you want to get into how your ambulance is constructed to make your service and your fleet better, that's an area to get involved in if you're interested in it. So it's not just the patient care side of it, but it's everything else that goes into being able to prepare yourself to be able to treat the patient and get there safely. Thank you. And uh, talking about getting around, I just want to do a quick shout out to NAMT's treasurer, Chief Rob Luckritz. I had the opportunity uh, to go down to Austin Travis County and uh, visit uh, Rob's system. And uh, if you are listening in Austin Travis County and I met you, you guys are amazing. You have uh, a vast array of services that you offer and one of the things, and, and this kind of comes back down to funding EMS, right? One of the things that Rob said is because Austin Travis is a sort of governmental ambulance service, they're exceptionally well resourced because that's what's needed. You said, Brian, and with a great health and social care safety net. And Austin's been equipped to do that uh, with all of the teams. And uh, again, one of the things that Rob said is people come along and say you're overfunded. And Rob's answer, and I think he's quite right, is no, I'm not overfunded. You are underfunded. And that's something that we need to fix. And so thank you guys at Austin Travis for uh, uh, hosting me for the day and uh, some other visitors. That was uh, uh, an experience I won't forget in any long time. Don't forget you can follow us on a number of podcast channels. And if you're enjoying the show, if you'd like to rate and review us, please do so on the channel that you're listening to us on because it helps us go up in the searchability scales and we want to do that. Um, also, don't forget uh, EMS Week is almost upon us. And the theme for this EMS week is EMS where emergency begins. And uh, hopefully you've heard uh, a lot about that uh, here today. And don't forget uh, our president, Susan Bailey, said, as we work to address problems in EMS, we must also be sure to celebrate our achievements and the tremendous value that we bring to our communities and patients. And you guys have exemplified that today. So thank you for doing that. And one more plug before we go, don't forget that the NAMT annual meeting is on September the 18th to the 21st in conjunction with EMS World this year in New Orleans. And so uh, it sounds a, a while away, but by the time you've got your funding cleared, you've got your accommodation and your flights taken care of, you've got someone to sign that bit of paper that says that you can do it, um, then it will be upon you before you know it. So time to act now. Um, we're going to see you there, Karen, right? Absolutely. Of course we are. Are you going to make it down, Brian? At this time, I'm not sure. My wife and I just had a new baby boy about two weeks ago. So having a newborn at home, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to get away this time. 
Congratulations. Congratulations from all of us here at NAMT Radio and all of us here at NAMT. So uh, so congratulations. And uh, we'll give you the pass just this once, but we'll see you next time, right? I hope so. Okay. And also, finally, don't forget that uh, the submissions are open for all of our national awards of excellence. And uh, I have to put my hand up and say that I am a recipient. Uh, my organization was a recipient of the Dick Furno uh, Award for Agency, EMS Agency of the Year a few years ago. And it's quite the honor. Um, how do you win it? Well, let me give you the first tip first. You have to enter because you have to be in it to win it. So, uh, um, you know, take a moment, think about what your organization does. As Brian said, we are doing anything and everything these days to support our local populations, our people. Um, So write it up because you'll be amazed at the things that you're doing that make you noteworthy and award-worthy. And of course, there's a number of other categories uh, as well, uh, paramedic of the year uh, from the military, etc. So, All those links uh, to those awards and everything that we've talked about today will be in the show notes. And so take a moment to have a look at that. Don't forget, you can get everything you need at NAMT.org. It's a total site with resource for anything and everything. Um, And so for the moment, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Very good. So uh, I was excited there to talk to uh, Brian Stennett and to Karen Larson. Um, They are indeed truly EMS professionals whose career paths we need to emulate, we need to follow. Um, Again, you know, here's my checklist. Be that lifelong learner, be knowledge hungry, then be motivated, be the communicator, have passion and be an enthusiast about what you do and things won't go wrong for you. So that was another edition of NAMT Radio. Thank you again to Brian and to Karen. I've been your host, Rob Lawrence. And until next time, bye for now.